Hello and welcome to the Blueprint Review Can Special Podcast. Um, we've it's me, Damien, regulars at Can. We've been joined by Dave's brother. Dave's gone. This is the first ever Blueprint Podcast without Dave, and I'm sure you'll realise the um, quality is going to jump tenfold. Um, say hello, James. Hello. Um, yeah, James joined us on Tuesday. There was a few days. I mean, Damien was alone, which we took advantage of in many ways. Um, we had a bit of a disaster. Obviously, in the last, we did a, in the last podcast, we mentioned that we didn't get into some screenings um, because it was bad weather and people didn't want to be out on the beach and drinking on the, you know, on the outside chairs or whatever. So people were watching films and ruined it for us. People who actually always want to watch films. But anyway, the disaster continued on Monday, and we tried getting into. What, I mean, what did we try and say on Monday? And uh, antiviral was um, antiviral was the day before. What did we try and say? Yeah, that seems like such a long time. Oh, ago now. country. Um, can't even remember, but anyway, we queued up, didn't get into this film, and with that, I mean, I, this is the fifth film, I, there's five films I couldn't see in a row, I never saw anything on Sunday, um, so there's five films I couldn't get into, we were that desperate to see a film, we ended up going to the, a market screening, which is in the, in the same cinema, and we ended up watching a film called The Lithium Conspiracy, um, an Italian thriller, um, <coughs> yeah, we were just desperate to see something, so we did, and we watched that, um, what do you think, Damo? Uh, it, I think <laughs> it was a it's an Italian thriller. The kind of it's the kind of foreign language film that we don't usually get to see over in England. Yeah, we'd never have seen that. Um, yeah. It's because basically it's this kind of big dumb product for the local fair. It's like a Hollywood film, but without with a very without the stars and without the budget. So it, it kind of involves a lawyer from a, a small who worked for a small bank. Um, being involved in this um, uh, conspiracy to buy countries, essentially, through increasingly ridiculous means. And the film is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's the kind of film where you know pretty much where it's going from the outset. There's action kind of set pieces at regular intervals. Uh, uh, the kind of the hot, young, sexy girl gets her breast out pretty early on. Um, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. Um, it's that kind of film. It's the kind of film where someone says, um, they basically spell out every little thing. It's like where there's a a, a, a document hidden behind a uh, someone's picture on the wall. Um, it's that kind of film. It was, to be honest, it was it was rubbish. It was just it was you know it was kind of what was expected. It's like a made for TV sort made of made for film, TV yeah. thing. It's like I mean it's no worse than any Hollywood made for TV thing. Yeah. Um, and there was actually a couple of uh, the the opening was I thought quite nicely done. It was um, quite a, quite a surreal opening over this um, uh, kind of made up South American countries. Uh, it's not actually set in a real country. I can't remember what it's called now, Chimera or something like that. Yeah. Um, set on these kind of salt salt fields. It's a kind of this white, bleached landscape, and these kind of uh, very colourful masked figures of bright pr- primary colours yeah. come in to this landscape. Sort of it's a local tribe, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's quite that's quite a nice visual visual thing. It gets the, the film as it goes on is becomes increasingly ridiculous, involving conspiracies of involving 9-11 and kind of things that get blown up in order to manipulate the stock market. It's absolutely ludicrous. And Yeah, I mean, it wasn't boring. We've seen a lot of fucking boring films in Canada. You know what I mean? What I will say, it's probably the one with the... That has a plot. 
which, um, you know, if I watched that today, I think I'd have been quite pleased, to be honest. We've watched a lot of, you know, plot doesn't go down very well in Cannes. So, um, so actually, in retrospect, we yeah, uh, probably loved it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was cack. Um, but the next day was a little bit better. It was a little bit better. We ended up watching a couple of documentaries. Yeah, so we, we saw a, a documentary that was in uh, the director's fortnight, and then we saw a... Um, a market screening uh, documentary. So do you want to start off, kick off with the director's fortnight one, which is Room 237. Room 237, yeah, basically a, a documentary. Well, it's billed as a documentary which is like really dissects the sort of making of The Shining and Kubrick, <laughs> and Kubrick himself, I suppose. But it, is a, it was a really weird film. It's completely what I wasn't expecting, and I'm still unsure what the intention is behind the film. Because... The last thing it does is dissect anything to do with The Shining. Maybe not anything, there's a few good bits, but generally speaking, we are introduced through voice only. They're not even named or there's no... They're not kind of quantified in any way, are they? They're just these voices of people. We don't know who they are, we don't know where they're, what their background is. Some of them imply that they've written books and stuff, but we don't... There's, it's a bit, a bit weird for that. And, um, and they, they end up tell, you know, they, they kind of tell us you know, their analysis of The Shining. But it's not just like interpretation. They, all of them are like, this is what it is. It is, you know, it is about the moon landing. It is about, you know, Kubrick filming it. Um, it is about, um, you know, kind of American Indians, which, you know, that's the one that actually does kind of ring true, which is kind of obviously placed throughout it. But for me, you know, it is these kind of deluded figures. And for me, it's more of a character study of these people and how interesting it is that... They kind of think what they think, and you know, in terms of, in this so so. So, what what are their kind of theories? What kind of theories do they come up with? Well, I'm trying to think now. The one the theory, the, the kind of craziest theory, I suppose, is the uh, is this moon landing thing. Like, there's a, there's a rumor, but I always thought it was Capricorn One. Is it Capricorn One or Capricorn Eleven? No, the Capricorn film was that basically the moon landing footage was faked, and that, that it was filmed, and there was like f- films at the time which used it, you know, kind of was, was shot on different planets and stuff, and and they were saying that's exactly what it is. And this one guy was saying that. This f- whole film is Kubrick telling the wo- his, his way of expressing that of how he felt about having to do this work for the government and film the moon landings to fool the nation. And he was on about how the relationship between Jack and his wife was him and his wife and him and, and his wife finding out, you know, they've seen with the typewriter that he's written this... You know, you know that he's find out what he's done, and then he sort of like goes mental in terms of like of how he feels that he did it, and sort of like I don't know, betrayal or whatever. Um, and then, but he then goes through the film and talks about these really crazy things, like obviously like it's called Room Two Three Seven, and one of his big theories was that originally it was Two One Seven, um, and that the the, the 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 kind of official stance is that you couldn't do Two One Seven because people who went to the hotel. You know, it put people off going in room 217 because of what happens in the film. But he said that's like a cover-up. The real reason is that the moon is 237,000 miles from Earth. So it's like a little clue for that. Um, and he also, along with the room, the room key has, you know, it says room number 237. And the room number, you know, the room and the N are capitalised with a little O to signify number. And he's saying that that is another clue because those letters, you know, room and N, make up the same as moon room. So that room, that room represents the moon of where he filmed um, this does, this footage. Does this theory hold any weight with you? Um, no, obviously not. You know, it, well, it's quite funny though. Obviously, that is um, the little kid. Um, he's got a moonlight. He's got the Apollo Eleven jumper on as well in its service. Maybe there is. Uh, well, maybe you never know. Maybe. Um, but what I'm trying to think? What other? Th- I can't even remember now. What else there was? It's, 
All I just remember is that all of them are fucking crazy. It, 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 how, and how was, how was it presented by the director? Was it, was it presented as being... Uh, were they held up as being ridiculed by the director? Or was it, was it just kind of presenting it as fact? Or It was just, it was just presenting it. There, was, it. there seemed to be no sort of... In a way, it was just sort of like laying it bare. Similar, in, in a, I suppose, but in a way to um, Herzog, in a sense, where he doesn't... He's, he's so... He's not judgmental. There's no judgment passed. He just plays it out and says, you know, what do you think? Um, saying that, there was a, sometimes there was a sort of a voiceover, and I was thinking, is this the director? Is this, you know, because there was no, none, none of the people were sort of quantified in any way, that you wasn't sure if any of them were the, the director. But I would say, I mean, I would be gobsmacked if the director isn't ridiculing these people. I would be not ridiculing them, but I would be gobsmacked if he doesn't know exactly how this comes across. It doesn't come across as an analysis of The Shining. It comes across as an analysis of these people. Of these people, but yeah, it's such a weird film. So basically, they're kind of reading um, things that are not there and kind of looking at continuity errors as, as being indicative yeah, the, of yeah, yeah. kind of obviously that's something else they genre do, yeah. tropes and things yeah. like that. So. The, the, the basics is that kind of infallible Kubrick. Everything, you know, even mistakes, he meant to do it. He is perfect and he did it. Even though they don't really explain, you know, obviously there's a scene where Jack's at the typewriter and in the background there's a chair, and then in the next scene the chair's gone. They just sort of say, yeah, it's just Kubrick's fucking attention to detail. And I'm like, but what is that doing? How did what? what? So will, uh, will Stanley be kind of looking down and laughing, or will he be turning his grave to see these people do this? I think he will be like, finally, someone has figured out what I was trying to do with The Shining. I am sorry I betrayed the nation. <laughs> Um, and filmed these the the, 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 moon, the moon landing. So um, what, what can we expect for this? Will it, is it anything other than an extra on a Blu-ray special edition DVD, or is it is it something that's going to be released on its own right? Or um, I think no, I think it will. I think it'll get a release. I think I think not maybe not a cult classic, but I think there's something about it because it is such an odd piece that it does present itself as this dissection of The Shining, and it's you know it's the last thing it is. I th- you know I think it won't do much, but I, I think it could get a, a bit of. Technically, is it well is it well filmed? I mean, is it well presented, or does it seem like amateurish? Well, a lot of it is just footage of The Shining. All of it, frame is by much. frame. And sometimes they go literally frame by frame. I mean, there's this one bit where he's on about this guy. He's on about it's just, it's all about sex, and he stands up and he's got an erection, which is like this paper tray. It doesn't even and he goes frame by frame when it happens. It doesn't even look like it. One of the funniest ones actually is these posters in the background, and there's obviously a skiing poster. And this one woman is just like, because it's all about, um, what is she, not like shamans, but like um, spiritual, what was she, I can't remember. Yeah, but she's not about that, and she's the skier in the poster isn't a skier, if you look closely, so we zoom in on this poster, and it looks like a fucking skier, but she's like, no, it looks like a minotaur, it's a minotaur. And then she goes through the film and like, looks at like his expressions, and said, that's his minotaur expression. And it was just fucking ridiculous, honestly, it, is, it, was, it was funny, it was absolutely funny, when you're watching this, because it, did you enjoy the bit when uh, someone was talking about the online analysis? It's almost like the, uh, the kind of classic playing the Pink Floyd song backwards when they played the film forwards and backwards, superimposed the same. over yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was quite, uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, they basically yeah, played it forwards and backwards to, at the same time to see all these images. And you know, you know what? It is obviously pure luck. But in all honesty, there were some actually quite nice... Sort of finding striking but, juxtapositions. It was interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. Film, the film was obviously completely ludicrous, but yeah. it, was, uh, it was always, it was always entertaining. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps a little bit long, but it was yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly entertaining. So, so after after that, we moved on from um, from that kind of quite a, a kind of light-hearted documentary in a way yeah. to something a little bit more. 
bit more serious, I guess. And what do you think of the Ai Weiwei Never Sorry documentary that we saw in the in the marketplace? I quite liked it. Um, the only thing, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, the only negative I'd say was that I mean, just a bit of background. Ai Weiwei, Ai Weiwei, fucking, I'm stuck. Ai Weiwei, <laughs> Lin Weiwei, Ai Weiwei is a, obviously a, a Chinese artist. And it's true, I didn't know that much about it. And I actually saw his London Tate exhibition. Oh, yeah. I didn't know much about it. You know, the, the, the porcelain sunflower seeds, yeah. Um, and it's just a, it's a look at his life. Um, but, you know, through that, you sort of realise how it's sort of social activism, I suppose, and how much he sort of literally sticks his finger up to the Chinese government. And, and obviously, you know, he was kidnapped last year and things like that. Not kidnapped, but he was sort of taken in and nobody knew where he was for a while. And he ended up being the Chinese government. So it's a look at him and his art... And I suppose, you know, how he uses his art to try and fight ba- needed battles in, in, in China. I actually thought it was really interesting. I thought it was, it felt unfinished. It felt unfinished to me in a weird way. There was, it, it, but it, it had such a raw look to it in terms of, again, there was no, you know, we kind of chatting to these people and it just felt quite messy. But I kind of liked that. You know, you even saw some outtakes from interviews and stuff of them making mistakes, you know, so it's quite interesting in that regard. Um, it does, for me, it focuses on, um, basically he gets sort of beaten up by the police and he then tries to go through these trials to do that. For me, it, it focused a bit too much on that. It sort of tried getting a, stu- a plot of like, the development of this, and there was no, it went nowhere. And the rest of it was, was just sort of these disparate, Sort of, you know, you know, you chat to his mother, his wife. You realise he had, he had an affair and had a baby with somebody else. And it is just, but again, it is just more interesting than a great. It's not a great documentary. It's not a great film in any way, really. But it is a very interesting look. But the subject is worth. Yeah, doing. absolutely. It's, it's, in a way, we obviously we last podcast we chatted about Anton Corbin. I think this is more documentary material. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I thought it's kind of brilliant, actually. I think yeah. it's um, kind of a bit of a minor masterpiece. I think lots, lots of the films that we've seen so far in competition in Cannes have been have been very cold and very calculated and very standoffish. Whereas I thought this kind of brilliantly drew, drew you into the subject. And Ai Weiwei does make a very engaging uh, subject. He's very candid in the way that he deals with everything. Um, even as, as you kind of Darren alluded to earlier, the fact that he'd had an affair. Um, with his long-term wife, who you know are very much still in love, but he has this relationship. He had an affair and has a, had a son with another woman, who he visits daily. He says, or um, visits on a regular basis. Um, and it's yeah, it's kind of a really. I find it quite moving at times. Um, portrait of of a man dealing with this kind of oppressive Chinese culture. He he went away. It's kind of it's set over kind of a four-year period, but and it does kind of open out and look back to what made him the man that he is. So he studied in New York in the 1980s. He's got this very kind of liberal approach um, from that. Um, but he decided to go back to China uh, when his dad fell ill. Um, and he's kind of stayed there ever since, really, trying to kind of change change things through through tweeting and through his artwork and and things like that. Um, was, the film, was the film biased... I mean, it sounds like it clearly it's you know biased in Ai Weiwei's favour, in that in a way it almost sounds like you know it's it's trying to create turn him into a hero figure for what he represents and the things that he does. But did it analyze? Did it suggest in any way things that he'd done wrong? I mean, was it completely biased in his favour, or was there any counter argument presented that perhaps you know what he's doing? 
isn't necessarily a good thing and he's just inviting controversy and he's not offering a solution, he's just being... I don't know, did it, did it present any alternative yeah. arguments or was it just a, or was it kind of one-sided? Like, Can you ask that question one more time? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I would say it was quite one-sided, but there was one interview where one sort of critic did, did present the other side and did say... There are, he does have his critics, and they say that actually China has moved on so much in the last ten years, and you know you can only do so much, and and people do think that he it is almost like not publicity stunt, but it is that that I you know the, the kind of question is in real integrity, I suppose, in saying look, how can you really knock what China is doing at this moment in time and and where it's come from, you know, and, um, and I suppose then but then straight away he then says, but then Ai Weiwei says that's still not good enough, that's not good enough reason to not keep fighting these to be oppressive yeah exactly so it, it's a tr- it is a tricky one because it doesn't really I don't know am, am I wrong I mean, does no, it... no I think, it, I think it, it kind of obviously presents him it's obviously on his side um, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily shy away from you know it, it doesn't kind of gloss over the you know the, the things that it mes- not necessarily does as well as he, as he might do yeah. I think it's a kind of a what it's not a what's an old portrait, but it kind of is. Yeah. It's, it's not. It doesn't shy away from anything. Um, but, but he doesn't. I mean, I think the the, 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 the real humanising aspect for me was the baby, was that affair. And, and he- one of the great scenes in there, actually, I think, I think is is when um, he learns of the Liu Subo um, Nobel Peace Prize, and just at that moment is when his his kind of son and uh, his kind of uh, the mother of his son comes in the room at the same time, and you can see that Ai Weiwei is genuinely moved. That he's been given this Nobel Peace Prize, um, and I find it like a really touching, touching moment in the, yeah, in the yeah. film. Um, so yeah, I, I hope it gets picked up. I'm sure it will do. Um, and to be honest, I think it's one of the one of the best things I've seen so far at Cannes this year. And it was, um, I mean, and there's a scene where an interviewer, and I loved it because this is interview, and it's like this really highbrow interviewer for, in the UK when he's at Tate Modern, talking about, and he said, oh, "Have you got any kids?" And he said, "Yeah, I've got a kid, but it's not to my wife." It's too, and then in the, the interviewer, clearly trying to be like on his side and be all cool, he kind of goes, oh, but you're an artist, so you're allowed to do that, aren't you? You know, you're allowed to sleep with women and babies, and he just goes, no, that's not a good thing at all, but these things happen, you know, and my wife, she's not happy about it, but she's not unhappy enough to leave me, sort of thing, and I, lo- I love that moment, because it was just, it was, it was, it is, it is a bad thing, when it first, you do kind of, it, Straight away, it's like, oh, hang on a minute, that's a bit off, and that's, so it's nice, but I love that moment, because that, that interview, it was a, Fucking knob, I'm trying. And then the way he was kind of going, oh, but you're allowed to do that because you're an artist. No one was so fucking it's, bohemian. It's the BBC, uh, yeah, it, BBC interviewer. Yeah, and straight, and he just goes, no, that is not. No, it's not a good thing. It was brilliant. I loved it. Brilliant. I loved it. So, that. so basically, we think it's not a big middle finger, as in I way where he's artwork. We big things up, thumbs up for that then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So moving on to James, when you arrived, yeah. what was the first film you saw, James? So, so the first film that I saw was um, uh, Curious Dami's new film called Like, like Someone, Someone in, in Love. Love. Yeah, Like Someone in Love. And I have to say, um, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. I think it it didn't completely fulfil um, its, uh, you know, all of its promises, as it were. But essentially the film is about, it takes place in Tokyo, and it's about a young, beautiful woman who, and her interactions with essentially three different men one of whom is her fiance is a, a young mechanic a struggling mechanic the other one is essentially her pimp because she it transpires that she's been making a little bit of money on the side to fund her studies um, by being a call girl 
and so we see her right in the early scenes of the movie being controlled and harassed and manipulated by this um, authority figure, this much older man who works in a nightclub, and um, and the final male figure in the in the film is is an, a very old, well-regarded academic professor, who she is set up to go and meet um, for a job. So, you know, you, you think that she's going to go there and and basically have sex with this old man, um, but it doesn't happen. And the old man is essentially. Um, he he becomes the focus of the film, and he is the narrator in the, in the way of what is happening to this one girl, and the and the and how the men in her life are controlling her and preventing her from being happy, because her fiance clearly loves her, but is very keen for them to get married. And uh, whenever she doesn't do anything that whenever she does something that he doesn't like, he gets very very confrontational and argumentative and shouts her. It's a very controlling relationship, just like the relationship she has with this pimp with this guy that employs her at the nightclub, he's basically controlling her and it's about elements of control how this woman basically doesn't get to do anything that she wants to do uh, without getting the say so from one of these authority figures in her life and it's, an, and, it's, and it's surprising that she goes to this old man's house she literally takes her clothes off and gets in his bed and he doesn't sleep with her, he, just, he wants to sit and have a chat to her he wants to find out who she is and what she's about that's like what you did when you went to the hooker. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly what it's like when I went to the prostitute all the time. You just <laughs> talk to them for money. But basically, yeah. But so, so, so that's the general premise. Um, and the film has some really quite moving and subtle imagery. There's a lot of the use of windows and glass and reflective surfaces in the film. I'm not totally sure. I haven't totally figured out why. But there's a, there's a wonderful shot near the beginning where... The, the poor girl is analysing text messages on her phone from her boyfriend who's trying to find out if she's cheating on, it, if she's cheating on him. And uh, this pimp walks out onto the balcony and you see his reflection sort of towering over her, sort of like, like a ghoulish spectre behind her in this, in this, reflected in this glass window looming over the back of her, perfectly symbolising what the director is trying to say, that you know, this, this woman is, is, is haunted by the spectres of all these controlling men that, are, that follow her around, even, even when they're not there, they're following her around like ghosts, informing what she does and the decisions that she takes. And there are several moments in the film where they use uh, reflective surfaces to sometimes just for aesthetic value, but it's quite a beautifully shot film. There's a very, very hallucinatory car journey through Tokyo near the beginning where she leaves a nightclub and she's on the way to the old man's house and this sequence is really long, it's about 20 minutes long and she's in this taxi and it's, it's really beautifully shot and he actually develops a great amount of tension as she's getting closer and closer to this man's house throughout that journey and you could argue that when she actually gets there all that tension kind of dissipates um, but, but, but there are some, some subtle m moments of quite profound beauty I thought in the film and, and finally I think that um, there are two uh, in, so there are two side characters, sm smaller roles in the film, where um, the professor meets a guy who he'd done business with in the past, who recognised him, and he's presented from behind a window. He's sat in his car, and you only just see his face framed in this little square window. And likewise, there's an exchange later on in the film when the old man's neighbour provides a bit of a commentary on the old man when, she's, when she confronts the girl.
and she's framed, her face is perfectly framed in a window. You don't actually see the rest of her body, you just see her face, and she's pre pre presenting um, her perspective on what this old man's like and what she should be doing. And um, again, it's just this, this motif running through the film. I'm not entirely sure of the, of the, of the significance, but I'd, I'd noted that he c continued to use this sort of metaphor, people behind windows, people behind glass. And I think he's trying to say something, just not entirely sure what. But I, I find it quite interesting. It definitely stayed with me. Slow-moving film, um, but I think it's quite clever. And I think he, it did it did provoke you to you know consider what he was trying to what he was trying to say. So I liked it. Liked it a lot. What I found interesting as an outsider, I've not seen it yet, um, was for you in particular, James, is that when you first saw it, we chatted about it, and you were like, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's it, but then every day since, it's slowly been building, and it's been clearly been like resonating and. I just wondered, you know, can it, you know, why is that? That every day it's it's got better in your mind, I suppose. I think I think it's it's, it's one of those it's, it's one of those films that, that that the message is somewhat ambiguous, and there are a lot of ideas presented in the film over quite a sedate and slow manner. And there are there are times when the director builds a lot of tension. The tension doesn't go anywhere, and it dissipates. And for that reason, when you leave the cinema, there is this sense of dissatisfaction you know it doesn't give you that hollywood resolution that, you, that as an entertainment you might crave and so you kind of feel well you know that kind of went a few different directions and it left a lot of loose ends and i'm not really sure if it accomplished anything but the images are striking the atmosphere is very haunting and he uses later on in the film there's a lot of japanese formalism at play in the way he creates his scenes um, and the way that he frames his characters, some some scenes in reminded me a little bit of like Ozu and Tokyo Story in a way. When when um, you know the camera is often quite static, and and uh, he uses the geometry of streets and brickwork and things to to frame his characters. So it's it's certainly interesting and beautiful to look at, and the characters, you know, they do go on. And, and you do have quite a lot of sympathy for the old man. You have an awful lot of sympathy for the young girl as well, and, I, and that's partly what resonates to me. I just it just makes me. It's, it's one of those films that you you kind of want to unravel it. You you want to know what he was trying to say. You want to try and figure it out. It is something of a puzzle, but it's not so impenetrable a puzzle as some of the other films I've seen in Cannes. It's not so impenetrable that you're like, I've got no idea what that meant. It gives you enough. That you can actually try and piece it together and try and understand it, and I think that's what—that's a measure of good art when someone makes you think like that. But Damon, you saw it as well. I mean, do you I concur? Or? I agree with with some of what James said. It was kind of—it <laughs> was beautifully shot. Um, it, it was very measured. Um, I was a big fan of of Kiristami's uh, previous film, uh, Certified Copy, um, and in, in the way that that kind of has many many similar kind of things of, of characters having long conversations. It's obviously got his kind of. Uh, Mr. Hammer's patented car shot where you've kind of got the camera looking back on two figures through the windscreen of the car, kind of having a dialogue. And much of the film does actually take place in in in, in vehicles, actually, and within the taxi and with the old man's Volvo. Um, <laughs> and it's... My problem with it is it doesn't doesn't add up to very much. It, it's not a satisfying, a certified copy, and it, it kind of it ends almost arbitrarily... Um, it's funny that you say kind of lots of things are shot through mirrors and, and windows. Without giving too much away, there is a, a kind of a, a window element largely right at the very end, which, oh, yeah, 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 which yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I won't give anything away. But James actually jumped uh, <laughs> almost into my lap at the, at the time. Something did did you enjoy it? Happen. I did very much enjoyed that. <coughs> um, my kind of biggest problem was it, it didn't lead up to anything. It's, it's, 
any time that it did, any tension that was built up was kind of dissipated by pointless um, action. So, for example, there was one time when when the elderly man, we never kind of fully understand the relationship between him and the, and, and the girl, um, but basically he has gone to pick her up after an incident and he parks his vehicle, goes out to get her, but he's obviously parked his vehicle in the, in the, in the way of other vehicles behind him who are beeping him, so he runs back into the car, drives all the way around and, and picks her up. And that's, there's no actual point in that, it's just kind of... There's, there's Unnecessary several, details. Several instances of this, and there's an example of when he comes down from his flats, gets into his car, reverses out his garage, and you, it's very long-winded for no, for no reason... Um, so any kind of interest that is building up is just dissipated by this kind of pointlessness, um, and that was kind of my my main issue with it. Really, it was yeah. just a bit unsatisfying, a bit long-winded, and utterly pointless. And, uh, <laughs> ultimately, um, but obviously, just to also say that we're now we're recording this on Friday. So we've been a bit slack, so we thought we'll just do the first two days, Monday, Tuesday, maybe we'll do another one tomorrow, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll very slowly catch up. We've, we've seen a lot of films, it took too long. Um, so what, what, kind of, what kind of have people got to look forward to? Just a couple of examples. A couple of examples. Um, big, big names like Andrew Dominic? Yeah, Andrew Dominic, so Killing Them Softly. Um, it's, it's a film about the Fugees. <laughs> um, now, obviously, it's yeah, Andrew Dominic. And what about um, the one that's been splitting everyone completely there? Holy Motors. Yeah, which, so yeah, that is a very interesting film. A couple so of us have seen it. You're going to watch it tonight. I'm going to watch it tonight. So, so, so all of us have seen it. Obviously, we've got Laura here as well. She could join us on Tuesday, but didn't see any films. So she'll join us tomorrow. Um, we've all seen that. Very interesting film. Um, I think it's, it's split the critics. I reckon it's even split us a little bit. Um, maybe not as quite so much. We're probably working in a sort of a middling range of a bit above average and a bit below average. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see mm. how that goes. Sightseer. But um, Sightseer, we've seen some... Yeah, Sightseers, obviously, and um, Ben Wheatley's new film after the, uh, you know, the phenomenon of Kill This, you know, the kind of critics sort of lauded, and we've seen his new one. Um, we've got some strong opinions. In all honesty, just as a general sneaky peek, I think would all of us agree that it's been a pretty poor festival? It's been disappointing given that on paper the 65th. Everyone was excited. I was like, look who's the director. Like yeah. Long camera. way to go. You know, we've obviously got Cosmopolis to look forward to, Mud, Paperboy. We'll have to watch. Um, Hemingway tonight. Watch yeah. off to the main screening. So we'll be um, got your tux ready. Tux ready, ready to blow on Nicole Kidman's neck, um, and then point at um, James. So yeah, set. I hope you enjoy that. And uh, yeah, we'll obviously re- reconvene tomorrow and uh, discuss all those matters. Awesome. Okay. See you later. Cool.